Our third presenter in this session is William Schultz. He's a graduate student in the Department of History at Princeton University. His dissertation called Garden of the Gods, Militarization and Religion in Colorado Springs, 1941 to 1991, explores the interplay between evangelicalism and the military in post-World War II Colorado Springs. He received his BA in History and Political Science from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where his senior thesis, New Wine in Old Wineskins, Fulton Sheen, Rochester, and the Paradoxes of Vatican II, was awarded the Frank Ryan Prize for Best Honors Thesis in History. William. All right, so I don't have a PowerPoint today, which in my case is mostly a good thing because I'm terrible with PowerPoint. But the one thing I regret is that you won't get a chance to see a picture of my protagonist, Robert Lefebvre, in particular to note his almost uncanny resemblance to Glenn Beck. <laughs> but I have been told that if you go right out the door, you can see a picture of Lefebvre hanging on the wall, smiling with his trademark mixture of geniality with a slight bit of creepiness. So after we're all done here, go take a look. On April 6, 1963, the Colorado Springs Free Press went to war. We are not fighting this war with bullets, bayonets, or atomic warheads, they wrote. We are not waging this war for personal gain. We are in it because we love our country, our state, our community. We challenge the residents of this community to join us in this attack on forces which would destroy our public schools, wipe out our tax-supported fire and de police departments, place shackles upon our tax-supported city, county, state, and federal governments. Their target was the Freedom School. But what was the Freedom School? And why did the free press hate it so much? To answer the first question, the Freedom School was a Colorado Springs school that taught libertarianism. Answering the second question will require us to look at the history of the Freedom School. The story of the Freedom School begins with Robert Lefebvre. In 1956, Lefebvre would found the Freedom School, but 20 years earlier, he was a DJ with dreams of becoming an actor. He wound up as something rather different, a mystic. In 1936, Lefebvre joined the I.M. movement, one of the many New Age religions that flourished in the 1930s. Now, Lefebvre was an enthusiastic member of the I.M. movement, and he reported a number of mystical experiences. In one of them, he drove for 60 miles per hour with his eyes closed, <laughs> while his astral self 
left his body and traveled to California. Not too shabby. By the late 1930s, however, the I Am movement was gaining notoriety not only for its unusual religious practices, but for its ferocious attacks on Franklin Roosevelt. In 1940, the federal government struck back by indicting two dozen leaders of the movement for mail fraud. Lefebvre was one of them. But he escaped prosecution by turning state's witness. In the late 1940s and early 1950s, Lefebvre dabbled in right-wing politics. As president of the Congress of Freedom, he praised Joe McCarthy. With the Wage Earners Committee of the USA, he denounced unions as communists. With the United States Day Committee, he called on Congress to make October 23rd official United States Day. He even tackled one of the greatest threats to American security in this period, the Girl Scouts, <laughs> who he denounced as communist sympathizers. <laughs> it was through conservative politics that Lefebvre became acquainted with the man who would bring him to Colorado Springs, R.C. Hoyles. Hoyles was born in Alliance, Ohio in 1878 and made a name for himself running a chain of Ohio newspapers. But he left the state in 1932 after someone tried to bomb his house. Repeatedly. <laughs> Ironically, this may have been the height of Hoyles' popularity. He moved to Santa Ana, California, and purchased the local register, which he then parlayed into a national chain of newspapers. Most were based in small cities in the South and West, and all served as mouthpieces for Hoyle's libertarianism. Even among conservatives, Hoyle's stood out for his opposition to any and all government. Roads, Police, the military, they all ought to be privatized, he argued. As for public education, Hoyles was on the record comparing public school teachers to prostitutes. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, Hoyles caused controversy <laughs> wherever he went. And he certainly caused controversy in Colorado Springs. In 1946, he purchased the local Gazette Telegraph. Now, at that time, the Gazette Telegraph was a union paper organized by the International Typographical Union. Hoyles was determined to break the union. And in February 1947, he did. When Hoyles and the ITU couldn't agree on a contract, the union went on strike. The Gazette vanished from February 3rd to February 6th, and then on February 7th, reappeared, written and printed by strikebreakers. The union didn't go quietly, however. On February 3rd, another paper appeared in Colorado Springs, the Free Press. This one staffed by ITU employees. They defined themselves not as anti-Hoyles, but as pro-Colorado Springs. 
And their first editorial breathed the spirit of boosterism. We have but one interest, and that is the advancement of Colorado Springs in every way possible. We want to see our city continue to grow and to maintain its position as the most attractive city in the United States. Robert Lefebvre stepped into this tense atmosphere in 1954 when Hoyles lured him to Colorado Springs to write editorials for the Gazette Telegraph. But Hoyles Lefebvre wanted to be more than a writer. He aspired to be a philosopher, America's first philosopher of freedom. Now, to be a philosopher, you need two things, an idea and a way to spread it. Lefebvre had the first. He called his philosophy autarky. I might call it libertarian self-help. It was libertarian in its rejection of government. Lefebvre wrote, while all governments begin with the promise that they will protect the many peaceful from the few who are belligerent, it's in the nature of governments that the rules will be extended and expanded until the state itself becomes man's mortal foe. Lefebvre believed that there was no political solution to this problem. No law could rein in the government because law itself was a creature of government, which is where the self-help element comes in. To destroy the state, Lefebvre believed that people needed to achieve a revolution in consciousness. He spelled out the idea, the cause of individualism and human liberty is too important a cause to be entrusted to any organization. Only you can improve yourself to the point where you are competent and capable of defeating socialism within yourself. Socialism within yourself. <laughs> now Lefebvre needed a platform for his ideas and thus was born the Freedom School. In fall 1955, Lefebvre purchased Glenrose Park, a 320-acre tract of land north of Palmer Lake. The next year, workers set about building a lecture hall and log cabins for students. Now, Lefebvre didn't pay for this construction out of his own pocket. There were quite a few people around the nation who saw the value, intellectual and political, in a school that preached the evils of government. These were the people who funded the Freedom School. Most of them were conservative businessmen, people like Roger Milliken of South Carolina, chief executive of the Deering Milliken conglomerate, or William Greed, a owner of a Milwaukee foundry, an active member of the John Birch Society. Later, these funding fathers were joined by a young oil tycoon from Kansas named Charles Koch. <laughs> With this financial support, the Freedom School was able to welcome its first students, four in total, in June 1957. They paid $150 for a two-week comprehensive course in libertarianism, taught by Lefebvre and a handful of other libertarian pundits from groups like the Foundation for Economic Education 
and the Christian Freedom Foundation. A 1959 report by several Freedom School graduates revealed an institution that was not quite living up to Lefebvre's dream. The Chamber of Commerce of Rockford, Illinois, had paid for some local teachers to attend the Freedom School. On their return, the teachers wrote a scathing report. They noted, of the five students enrolled in the mid-August section, three were people who had been enrolled in previous courses and were already disciples. The other two were revolted by the school philosophy and rejected it. The teachers seemed revolted as well, for they compared libertarianism to anarchy, called it unchristian, and speculated that the school was only a front for its local angel, R.C. Hoyles. Their conclusion? We believe the Freedom School is a very clever racket. Yet by the early 60s, Lefebvre dreamed of turning the Freedom School into a college. To give this proposed Rampart College the proper academic luster, he set out to recruit an all-star faculty, and he succeeded. The associated faculty of Rampart College was a who's who of libertarian intellectuals. It included two future Nobel Prize winners, Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek, both economists at the University of Chicago. Now, granted, the connection of some of these men with Rampart College was limited. Hayek never taught a class there, but what mattered was not their presence, but their prestige. In addition to credibility, Rampart also needed money, and for that, Lefebvre turned to the Colorado Springs business community. In February 1963, he gathered 80 local businessmen at the Antlers Hilton Hotel and asked them for $5 million to fund Rampart College. It was this fundraising appeal that led the free press to declare war on the Freedom School. The free press had long been frustrated by the fact that the Gazette Telegraph reaped its profits from Colorado Springs while proposing policies that, in the eyes of the free press, were bad for the city. And now, again in the eyes of the free press, another mouthpiece of R.C. Hoyles was seeking money from Colorado Springs to fund another toxic venture. And so, the free press's editorial page became a drumroll of attacks on the Freedom School. Anti-Freedom School editorials appeared on February 21st, February 24th, February 25th, February 26th, February 28th, March 3rd, March 6th, and March 18th, and this is not even counting the letters to the editor. In April, the Free Press collected all of these anti-Freedom School editorials, letters, and cartoons into a single 14-page pamphlet for easy reading. <laughs> Though the Free Press titled one of their editorials, Must We Stand Alone? In this case, they were not alone, 
but were joined in the attack by a group of other critics of Hoyles and the Gazette-Telegraph. William Henderson, former mayor of Colorado Springs, declared, I regret that Colorado Springs receives nationwide publicity of this type, advertising to the world that we are the home of crackpots. <laughs> maybe, maybe the harshest attack came from within the Chamber of Commerce. Now, when Rampart was announced, the Chamber of Commerce welcomed the school and bought an ad in the Gazette Telegraph welcoming it. But a few days later, Tom McLaughlin, a member of the Chamber's executive committee, released a withering dissent. I can think of many enterprises which would bring additional dollars to the community, yet which would be no more wanted by the chamber members than a skunk is welcomed at a family picnic. <laughs> These attacks hammered the same theme. They accused the Freedom School of being un-American. Said one editorial, the Freedom School was spreading the poison of anti-public school, anti-police, anti-fire department, anti-taxation, anti-foreign aid, in short, anti-American way of life. They even reprinted an editorial from a local high school newspaper that accused the Freedom School of being un-American for opposing our American and democratic machine of education. Yet beneath this patriotic piety lurked a deeper fear that the Freedom School was bad for business. William Henderson put it plainly, I contend the organizers and proponents of Rampart College are a deterrent to our industrial program. The free press lamented, would we not prefer that this area be known as one of the most progressive in the nation a place where industry is welcomed? It is, then, best to look at the conflict over the Freedom School not only as a dispute over libertarianism, but as an episode in the long-running struggle to define and control the image of Colorado Springs. The city has always used its image as a selling point. It sought to bring in outside money by advertising itself as a beautiful, peaceful, business-friendly community. And so there have been many moments in times past when local elites have had to step in and curb ideas which seem to threaten this carefully cultivated reputation. In the 1940s, H. Chase Stone warned other natives of Colorado Springs not to criticize or take advantage of the soldiers at Camp Carson. In the 1990s, local corporations sponsored festivals of diversity to help the city buck its reputation as an evangelical Vatican. Seen in light of this history, the war on the Freedom School was simply part of this boosterish, business-minded tradition in Colorado Springs. Ultimately, though, it wasn't these attacks that did in the Freedom School. It was financial disaster. Lefebvre's corporate patrons lost patience with his financial incompetence. And they were also leery about his background, especially the IM movement. They wanted their movement to be respectable 
and respectable was not a word one associated with Robert Lefebvre. They shifted their money elsewhere. Robert Lefebvre, broke, was forced to sell the Rampart College campus. He moved to Santa Ana, California, where he continued the Freedom School as a correspondence course until his death in 1986. The history of the Freedom School makes an important point about bigwigs in the Pikes Peak region, namely that they have not always been welcome. Certainly, Lefebvre and Hoyles brought money to the community, but for many people, it was the wrong kind of money. They thought it carried an ideological taint. The Freedom School shows that growth is never just growth and that money has consequences outside the balance sheet. It's a lesson that Colorado Springs and every community must be attentive to. Thank you. Thank you, William. Our final speaker for this session is Katie Rudolph. She's an archivist at the Denver Public Library's Western History and Genealogy Department. She previously held the position of photo archivist at the Pikes Peak Library District Special Collections. She holds a master's degree in library science and information studies from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Prior to moving to Colorado, Katie held positions at the Wisconsin Historical Society, Wisconsin Public Television, and the University of Wisconsin's Helen Louise Allen Textile Collections. And Katie is here. Okay. <laughs> You're just messing with me. <laughs> Carlina, Roma, Blonda, Coletti, Spinuzzi, Smaldone. For several decades, these names were staples in Colorado newspaper headlines, where their gang wars were documented and their alleged crimes were sensationalized. They were entrepreneurs in Ill illegitimate industries, striking it rich, selling bootleg bootlegged liquor, and operating gambling dens. Besides the money, there was power too. Their influence reached some of Colorado's highest officials, but their schemes came with steep consequences. Violence, prison time, and even death. Far from the hubs of organized crime, like New York and Chicago, the mafia flourished in the unlikeliest of places. How did a relatively small Western state fall under the clutches of the mafia? The origins of the Mafia lie in Sicily, an island that endured many, well, countless years of foreign rule by Greeks, Romans, Goths, Byzantines, Arabs, Normans, and Bourbons. And it has been believed that having so many absentee rulers for such a long time caused Sicilians to harbor this deep distrust for government, which caused them to seek justice um, with anyone but the state. Um, so in the 16th century, Sicilians banded themselves together into territorial guilds that acted as judicial systems. Hatred, hatred for foreign rule was also the impetus for multiple violent rebellions and conspiracies, and um, that's depicted in this uh, Sicilian Vesper painting here that um, depicts the rebellion against the French in 1282. 
But mafia wasn't simply just a reaction um, to foreign rule and the anarchic society that had resulted. Um, it really grew out of poverty. Sicily and parts of southern Italy were under a feudal system um, that was retained really into the 19th century. The feudal system consisted of a landlord who usually did not live on the estate, and so therefore he would hire men um, called gab gabaloti to run the manor. They would in turn hire um, uomo di fiducia, or tax collectors who would in turn um, hire campieri, who were um, basically the thugs, <laughs> um, to, keep, to keep the peace. This type of system exploited the lower class, mainly through extortion. Um, it was extortion that set up the gabellotti, the uomo fiduci, and campieri to enjoy a more comfortable lifestyle. And this is where we really see the emergence of a middle class in Sicily. When Italy became a nation in 1861, the, transi the transition was not easy for the South. Um, they, had, they, they had been racked by economic and social problems. Um, and education, industry, transportation were all vastly underdeveloped. So poverty, unemployment, natural disasters, crime and disease were constants in um, southern Italian life. Attempts by the Italian government to modernize the system um, were met re with revolts and um, the government really punished um, the area for many years. Um, under martial law, thousands of people were imprisoned, deported, and executed. So with these oppressive conditions, um, it came as little surprise that four million Italians emigrated to the United States between 1880 and 1820. And a high percentage of those immigrants um, stayed in the Northeast, where they worked as semi and unskilled uh, laborers. And many of them came as contract workers through the padrone system, um, where a labor broker would visit the country um, and, get, and get workers to come back with them. Um, Italian laborers also came to Colorado beginning in the 1880s. Before that, um, it had been northern Italians who had made their way to Colorado. Um, they were of a different class. They were merchant class, generally. Um, so we get these Italian laborers who are working on the railroad in mines and in the agricultural sector and they were often exploited. A Denver Times article from 1899 explains how a labor broker had promised 27 Italian men that they would be doing company work on an established railroad in the city of Colorado Springs. However, <laughs> when they arrived in Colorado, they were informed that they would be living in tents, um, working on uh, widening a track of the Rio Grande uh, Railroad and they would be in La Vida. They would be temporary and they would be low paid. As the US saw a wave of immigrants flood its shores, um, nativist attitudes and resentment for this um, immigrant labor increased, especially during um, the time after um, the panic of 1893. At around the same time, um, you see a lot of uh, racial science um, becoming popular 
Italians were classed as non-white, and so they um, really had, had a status that was um, pretty low. What this meant for Italian laborers in, in Colorado is that after their contract work or their seasonal work would end, they would um, usually go to Denver and they would struggle to find work there and they'd be living in poverty. Um, so they, they found that they had little economic or political power in their new homeland and basically the same problems of unemployment, poverty, and disenfranchisement followed them to Colorado. Um, they, they tried to fight this in some ways. Um, they were very involved in labor unions. Um, they developed these local Italian clubs and societies, and they were involved in, with the Catholic Church. But for a very small number, there was also um, mafia. The first type of mafia activity that flourished in the U.S. was extortion, and this includes Colorado. Um, at the turn of the 20th century, reports of black hand letters began to proliferate newspapers. Um, the black hand was a term used to describe what was believed to be these secret Italian societies um, of extortionists that, who used violence to get what they wanted. Cases of black hand letters surfaced in Colorado. On March 8, 1911, the Colorado Springs Gazette reported that Harry O. Vonnecker, a teamster for the Epperson, at the Epperson Grain Company, was shot at while he lay in bed. A few days prior, he had received a letter from the Black Hand that read, you have run a friend of mine out of town and I am going to kill you. Over time, this term, the Black Hand, came to mean uh, just crimes committed by Italian immigrants. And although many Black Hand extortion letters were not believed to be the work of Italian Americans, it is important to acknowledge that extortion was a reality in some Italian enclaves in the US. Um, where Italians would extort other Italians who are familiar with this um, type of activity. In this, we see the repetition of the system that flourished in Sicily here in the U.S., using extortion as a way to better oneself and to become middle class. Colorado became a dry state in 1916, and in 1920, the entire country followed suit. By 1922, um, there were two Italian families in southern Colorado, um, the, the Donnas and the Carlinos, who were vying control for this illegal liquor market. The four Donna brothers, Tony, Vito, Sam, and John, owned farms east of Pueblo in Vineland. The two Carlino brothers, Sam and Pete, had been farmers who had unsuccessful runs um, in Crowley and Los Animas County before uh, coming to Trinidad to become salesmen. <laughs> a string of violent events was set off when an associate of the Carlinos, along with two children, were gunned down in a grocery delivery wagon in Pueblo in May of 1922. Um, acts of revenge followed this, of course, um, in the form of two fatal public shootings that really um, uh, the public was in shock over in February and July of 1923. The violence culminated in September of that year with a shootout between the Donnas and the Carlinos that occurred in a alfalfa and sugar beet field five miles east of Pueblo. 
um, the battle was said to have lasted three hours and that between 100 and 400 bullets had been used. Um, two people died in that battle, Charlie Carlino and Dominic Ingo of Chicago. Um, by spring of 1925, six of the Carlino associates and two of the Donna gang had been murdered. Um, John Donna would die from a barrage of gunfire by the summer, and his two brothers, Tony and Pete, were gunned down outside of Pueblo's Monte Carlo pool hall on the afternoon of May 14, 1926. Um, so after their death, there, was, there were these really um, extravagant, uh, an extravagant double funeral held for them because they were so beloved in Pueblo. Um, and then we see... In 1930, um, the last of the Donna brothers was murdered in a Pueblo alley. And um, given the body count, the Carlino brothers had, had won the war. <laughs> in 1930, the Carlino brothers and their families moved to North Denver. And they had successfully gained control over production and distribution of alcohol in southern Colorado, and they looked to expand into Denver. And this would ignite a new gang war in 1931. And so I'm going to give you a little uh, timeline of what, what goes on. These are newspaper reports. So January 24th, 29 bootleggers assemble in Wheat Ridge to clear up jurisdiction issues and set prices. Federal and state officers arrest all of them, including Sam and Pete Carlino, but later, all are released. Denver grocer Joe Roma, who heads up the bootlegging trade in Denver, is believed to have organized the meeting, which he failed to attend. <laughs> February 18th. Four shots are fired from a car at Pete Carlino, at the corner of West 23rd and Tejon Street. Carlino isn't harmed, but five days later, his bodyguard, Ignacio Vaccaro, disappears and is never heard from again. March 2nd, Denver District Attorney investigators follow a car they believe to be filled with bootlegged liquor. While on the 20th Street Viaduct, a car driven by Eugene Checker Smaldone cuts in between the agents and the bootlegged vehicle stalling the pursuit. March 16th, the empty Federal Boulevard home of Pete Carlino is destroyed by a mysterious explosion. Pete and Sam and four Pete and Sam Carlino and four others are suspected of arson to obtain insurance money. May 7th, Sam Carlino and James Coletti are killed in a house at 3458 West 33rd Avenue in Denver. The Denver DA charges 17-year-old Bruno Morrow, called the baby bootlegger, because he worked um, in the still in Aguilar that belonged to the Carlinos. June 19th. Pete Carlino, who had been missing since his house exploded in February, was arrested in a farmhouse in Pueblo and returned to Denver to await his fate on an arson charge. And here, lots of rumors of deportation swirl. June 23rd, Pete Carlino's rival, Joe Roma, posts his $5,000 bail. September 13th. The bullet-riddled body of Pete Carlino is found on Siloam Road, 23 miles southwest of Pueblo. He had been shot three times at close, at close range with poison bullets. 
Um, so there had been speculation that Joe Roma killed Pete Carlino um, and that his posting bail was an act of, a disingenuous act of kindness. Um, and others believe that uh, Pete Carlino really um, was killed in, re in um, response to the Donna brothers' murders years earlier. Okay. With the deaths of the Carlino brothers, Joe Little Caesar, um, Little Caesar because he was five foot one, became the first real leader of an organized Colorado mafia. Roma's leadership, however, wouldn't last long. February 13, 1933. Joe Roma, reputed leader of the Denver underworld, was found shot to death at his home today. The body was found in a chair by his wife, Nellie Roma, who returned after a shopping trip downtown. Roma had been dead about two hours. Roma is known to have conferred with the chief of police, Clark, at police headquarters yesterday, and it was, ru it was rumored he was dissecting the kidnapping of Charles Betcher II. Unverified rumors also said the Betcher family had considered using Roma as a go-between with authorities to negotiate with the Betcher kidnappers. Five bullet wounds were found in Roma's body. He apparently had been playing a mandolin when an unidentified person slipped into the house unnoticed and fired at Roma point blank. Um, reasons for Roma's death, um, there, people felt I think that he was a snitch. He um, had visited the police headquarters a lot recently, and so I think there was some concern that he was um, divulging information. So when prohibition was repealed in December 1933, the Colorado Mafia lost a major source of their income, but they quickly found that gambling was a very suitable replacement. Dice games like bar booth, uh, sports betting, and even slot machines were, ventured, were ventures operated all over Colorado from Pueblo to Central City, where the mafia ran a summertime casino in the 1940s and the 1950s. Gambling and loan sharking didn't incite the kind of violence that bootlegging had, but from the 1930s until casino gambling um, became legal in Colorado in 1991, it was a, a lucrative uh, main industry for the mafia. A series of bosses maintained control over these ventures as state and federal forces became more and more aggressive to, to shut down organized crime with each passing decade. So I'm just going to give you a brief um, overview of, of the bosses. Um, this is Charles Charlie Blonda. Um, he became the boss after Roma was shot in 1933. He was based out of Pueblo. Um, he ran multiple businesses, car wash, plumbing company. Um, he had a nightclub. But he was really responsible for connecting um, Colorado Mafia to the Chicago Syndicate. Um, uh, he was sent to prison for tax evasion in 1953, and he served three years. Uh, when he got out, he was an, acted as an advisor, and he died in 1969. Vincenzo James Black Jim Coletti uh, took over when Charles Blonda was um, sent to prison. He was a liquor store 
owner and bar owner in Pueblo. He had only minor offenses on his record, uh, including a dog leash law violation, <laughs> until he was arrested at the uh, upstate New York Appalachian uh, Mafia Conference in 1957. And he would, he would reign as boss until around 1969. This is um, Joseph James Scotty Spinuzzi. So after the retirement of Coletti, um, Spinuzzi became boss, and he resided in Pueblo, where he had a cafe and a nightclub. Um, he was known for having a very volatile temper um, that, that Blondo couldn't control. Um, he served prison time for burglary charges and was convicted of tax evasion, um, but he would die of natural causes in 1975. And finally, we have Eugene Checker Smaldone. Uh, while the Colorado Mafia had basi basically been um, based out of Pueblo, uh, they had allowed the Smaldone family to really run operations in Denver. Um, and Checkers became the boss after Spinuzzi died in 75. Smaldone was the co-owner of Gaetano's restaurant in Denver, and he served um, sentences for auto theft, bootlegging, tax evasion, and loan sharking. He died in 1992, and many believe that's kind of when the strength of the mafia um, really, really died in Colorado as well. In, uh, in June 1974, it was reported that New York Mafia boss Joe Bananas Bonanno was house hunting in Denver and the Broadmoor neighborhood of Colorado Springs. He was believed to see potential for mafia, mafia growth in Colorado and described Denver as virgin territory. So that leads one to believe that Colorado never really had mafia bigwigs, and that wasn't true. Uh, mafia in Colorado had organized and led industries of illegal liquor and gambling for much of the 20th century. But um, perhaps what Bonanno was hinting at was that the activity here never really, uh, it, it didn't tap things like drug trade, prostitution, labor union involvement in the same way um, as it had back east. So was Front Range Mafia a gentler, kinder mafia? Uh, <laughs> while there are accounts um, given by Clyde Smaldone that you know, his family really gave to charity, um, to orphanages around Denver, um, they weren't exactly considered benefactors in society. Nonetheless, um, it is important to recognize that the mafia in Colorado created industries, although illegitimate, um, they generated millions of dollars in the Colorado economy, and this got the attention of local, state, and federal government agencies. Whether or not their methods were ethical or moral, tru truly members of the Colorado Mafia were, for a while, bigwigs on the front range. Katie, Katie. If we can have our speakers up, I know lunch is in the offing, but there uh, un are undoubtedly uh, some questions. So, Katie, you want to come back up? And, and while they're coming up here, I don't know how you feel, but as far as the theme of bigwigs and benefactors goes, the plot thickens. <laughs> <laughs> questions? Yes, sir. Did the mafia have 
The question is, were there uh, mafia locations around Pikes Peak and Circle? Another question. Yes, sir. Bill, Bill, why did Wade, I don't get why Wade wanted to send the silver to Mexico. Why couldn't they mint it here? Why didn't Wade want to, why did he want to send the silver to Mexico? Great question. Um, they couldn't mint coins in the state. They were not allowed to do that. Sorry. They weren't allowed to do that. So if you think about it, um, the federal government was purchasing silver from the mines in the state. So we had money coming in buying silver. That stopped. As part of the federal response to the Depression of, of 93, that stopped. So Waite was looking for another way to do it. He illegally could not do it in the state. So he was going to use Colorado money to purchase the silver, send it to Mexico, have it minted, and then back to the state. Would it have been counterfeit or would it have been special? Well, coin? that was the problem. <laughs> <laughs> that was part of the problem. Um, it was not legal for Colorado to do that, but, but Waite, Waite had the theory that this was a trust given to the federal government. And when they chose to, re to stop that, that trust then would have reverted back to the state. And that's the, that was his uh, philosophy on that. Back there, yes. When was the Denver Mint established? Is it under federal, it's under federal government? When was the Denver Mint established? I don't know the answer to the first part of that, but the second part is yes. <laughs> yes, sir, back there. I have a question for uh, Bill Thomas and for Mr. Schultz. How would you characterize the governorship of Hubbard after this wild election? And thanks for an amazing story. And Mr. Schultz, another amazing story. Uh, if you could characterize today's Gazette. <laughs> <laughs> William, would you like me to take you off the hook? Or <laughs> Bill, you want to answer the first question? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so the question was, what was the administration like of the governor that um, came after Waite? And actually, actually, it was McIntyre. McIntyre was a farmer, a gentleman farmer judge from Canyon City. And it was more of a, let's sort of get things back to normal, let's um, elevate business, let's become more prosperous, let's sort of let's sort of purge all that socialist stuff that the populace wanted to do. Yeah, uh, as for the, as for the uh, Gazette Telegraph, I mean, nowadays, yes, it's clearly still a very conservative paper. But I don't think it's all that out of keeping in terms of other, you know, small city business-oriented papers. Back when Hoyles was running things, it was very, very much further to the right, if you want to put it that way, um, in both its libertarianism and also its Christian moralism. It talked repeatedly about the need to obey the Ten Commandments, and Hoyles was actually such a stickler about morality that he had his papers print the names of all the divorce cases in local markets, no matter how obscure the people were, as a means of publicly shaming them, uh, which I don't believe the Gazette d 
does anymore, though maybe I'm just not looking in the right sections. Thank you to all of our speakers for this round.